Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's always good to have the privilege, the opportunity to open God's Word with you. We're going to be this morning in Hebrews, starting in chapter 3. Uh, you may recall we've started a study, a series in Hebrews, and Pastor Mark has helpfully divided that out for us, uh, interspersed with some Old Testament sermons that, that kind of help us as we walk through Hebrews. And you may recall last time we were here, uh, he walked us through Psalm 95. So this morning, Lord willing, we will end in the middle of, of chapter 4. Up to this point, what we've seen is that the book of Hebrews uh, is all about Christ, right? It's, it's pointing us to Christ. It's showing us, the author of Hebrews wants us to see the supremacy, the superiority of Christ. There at the very beginning of the book, long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The author of Hebrews wants these uh, Jewish believers that he's writing to, to see the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus. And in chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see that Christ uh, is exalted over Moses. We've seen that he's exalted over angels, and now we're going to look and see that he's exalted over Moses as well. My takeaway for you this morning is this. It's that Christ is exalted over Moses, and that he is the only one who makes it possible for the children of God to experience God's rest. So Christ is exalted over Moses and His exaltation makes it possible for us as the children of God to experience His rest. Let me pray as we prepare to look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day and this time. We thank You that we are a people who gather around Your Word. These ancient words, long preserved for our walk in this world. God, we thank You that this, this Word that we stand behind is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing to, to joint and marrow. It, it speaks. It's alive. And so I pray as I stand behind it this morning and proclaim that you, God, would speak. Would you work in the lives of your people? Would you draw those who are lost to yourself? For our good and your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've divided, a way I thought helpful to divide uh, this passage, because what I'm hoping to do this morning is we'll get all the way through chapter 3 and stop in verse 13 of chapter 4. So the three divisions, chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, then we're going to look at 7 through 19 together, and then we're going to look at 1 through 13 of chapter 4 all together. So first we're going to see Christ compared to Moses, then we're going to see the followers of Christ compared to the followers of Moses, and the failure of those followers during the Exodus generation. And then we'll conclude as the author gives us this call to enter and receive God's rest. 
You know, I think Pastor Mark, who so helpfully has divided up the book of Hebrews for us, he was trying to stretch out my sermon preaching average a little bit this morning by giving me all these verses. So I do realize this is going to be a challenge, but hopefully, hopefully I won't hurt my average too much. So verse 1 here of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The therefore that we find there in verse 1 of chapter 3 looks back at what the author has just said about Jesus at the end of chapter 2. That he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Christ is our older brother. He became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus was the only one without sin, thus making him a faithful and sufficient high priest. And so the author here, he's calling on these Hellenistic Jewish believers, those who would have been immersed in Greek culture, uh, but Jewish by their ethnicity and identity, and yet they believed in Christ. The text tells us they're holy brothers. They've been made holy by the sacrifice of Christ. The author of Hebrews wants them to consider Jesus, the one sent by an apostle, by the Father as an apostle and as a faithful high priest. These believers would have been familiar with Moses, right? They would have known about Moses. They would have respected Moses. And so the author, again, wants to just compare the two and help them see that Jesus is superior. This is not a slight on Moses, but instead it's a comparison to the greater worth and honor that belongs to Jesus. The text says there in verse 5, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. The difference between Moses and Jesus is that Moses was a servant and Jesus a son. The Greek here is helpful. The Greek word we often get for servant uh, is a term that translated means slave. It comes from the Greek term doulos. But instead, the word we have here in, in this passage for servant is a different word. It's the word therapon. And it has to do with this idea of, 
of nobility or rank and, and position. So, so the author here is saying Jesus is not just a servant of the house. He's not just a high-ranking official in the house, but he's Lord of the house. And the rights and privileges that are granted to the son of the house are much greater than those granted to a servant. The ministry of Moses pointed to the one who was to come that was greater than he. We see this in, in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is speaking there. Deuteronomy 18, 15, uh, Moses says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Jesus is both creator and redeemer, and therefore he's superior to Moses. Moses was faithful in all of God's house, but Moses didn't build the house. The architect, the builder of the house was Christ. The author is reminding us here, Jesus is creator and redeemer, and we, his people, are his house. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. At the end there of verse 6, the text indicates just that, that we're the people of God if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And as we have seen, and hopefully as we'll see again as we work through these verses this morning, genuine faith produces in us an endurance that will help us persevere to the end. As the Spirit of God works in us, the people of God, the Spirit uses passages like these and other warning passages that we find throughout the Scriptures as a means to bring us in to this, this promised rest, to help us, as we sing, hold fast. That's what uh, the Spirit of God is doing through the Word of God, helping us hold fast till the end. I like the theme that, that Pastor Mark has set up for us with this book. You may recall this. It's, it's this, that our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ Jesus. So what Christ has done is going to see us through. It's going to empower us to endure all things. The next section here then moves, the author moves to comparing the followers of Christ with the followers of Moses, making emphasis on the failure of Moses' followers during the Exodus generation. So let's look there. Look with me at verse 7 of chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. In verses uh, seven through th- excuse me, seven through eleven of chapter three, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm ninety-five. You recall what Master, uh, excuse me, Pastor Mark uh, preached on last time, and that that passage is pointing us back to Exodus seventeen. So the author does not want these Jewish believers, he's burdened for them to not experience the same consequences that the Israelites did during Moses' day. He wants them to believe and to thus enter the promised land that awaits the children of God. In verse 15, we see verse 7 repeated again, just emphasizing how important this is, how devastating the hardness of heart and the deceitfulness of sin can be. The issue we see as we look back at Exodus 17 had to do with their their testing, right? Their quarreling, their grumbling with God, ultimately their unbelief. The issue was unbelief. They saw God work. They saw Him perform miracles with their very eyes, right? You recall the Israelites being led out Uh, of Egypt, out of the the hand of Pharaoh, by the hand of God. They're provided manna from the hand of God in the wilderness. They're given water at, at Massah and Meribah, and yet there's still unbelief. There's still hardness of heart. Sin is amazingly deceitful, isn't it? I think we would all Yes, amen. It's just, it's so good at deceiving us. The evil one is the father of lies. He lies to us. Sin makes promises. And on the face of it, the promises appear satisfying, appealing, appeasing. And yet, they're false promises. That's what sin does. It offers us false promises promises, whether that's lust or covetousness or bitterness or pride or despair or anxiety, the lie often looks the same. It's that, you know, look here, look at at what this offers you, look at how great this is, how great this will be. Here's an escape from the pain you're feeling. And yet every time it just leaves us hurting, wanting more, confused. It's a false promise. 
Our hearts are prone to wonder. I know my heart is so prone to wonder. At times, we can see the hand of God clearly in our lives, right? Maybe His provision or a prayer that is clearly answered. And then, so quickly, we can refuse to believe. We can demonstrate by our actions and our attitudes that, that we're banking more in the false promises of sin than we are in the promises of God. The battle that we're in is a battle to believe and to bank on the promises of God. To put all our trust, all our hope in what He promises us and not what sin seeks to offer us. So let's just, let's just step back from the text just a minute and think a little bit more about application. Where are you today? Where am I today? Where am I banking my hope? What promises am I trusting in? Or maybe, where am I struggling to believe? What's your battle with unbelief? What false promise are we holding on to? In verse 19, we see that the people of God were unable to enter the land that was promised to them because of their unbelief. How can we encourage one another to believe? To believe? How can we fulfill what we'll see as we get to Hebrews 10 to, to consider how we might provoke one another to love and good works, to encourage one another, to hold on to the promises of God so that we don't fall away from the living God. Part of what we do each week as we gather here and as we sit under the Word proclaimed is we exhort one another and we call one another to faith. As we see there in verse 13, we, we, we challenge one another, we encourage one another to not become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As we meet in small groups and in D groups, we encourage and exhort one another to believe in the promises of God. Oh, might we heed this warning and might God use it as a means in our lives to lead us to believe so that we might enter the land that is promised to us, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. And that leads us to, to chapter 4. In this last section here, it's pointing more to the future. The author of Hebrews now turns to more what is to come for the people of God. And we receive a call to enter and receive His rest. Look with me there at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, let any of you should seem, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as He said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall away by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Told you it was a lot, right? It's, yeah. But these verses to us, they're, they're such an encouragement. And they're also a warning. So it's like we have both. Such an encouragement and such a warning. The promise of entering His rest still stands. It's still available. One commentator describes God's rest as God's blessings of safety, security, and salvation. So I think that's a helpful way to think of it. If you think about God's rest... It's His blessing of safety, security, and salvation. And we see here in these verses what the author of Hebrews is doing is, is he's linking God resting on the seventh day with the rest that is now available to the people of God in Jesus Christ. Verses 8 through 10 also indicate a future rest for those that continue in belief. So for those who continue to believe, there's this promise of future rest. Look back there at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author here is referring to much more than the promised land that Joshua leads the people into. For we know Psalm 95 was recorded after Joshua's day. And the congregation sings this song, psalm already in the land. So it just indicates for us that it's, it's pointing to something more. Namely to the presence of God and the experience of His rest for all eternity. Theologians often refer, refer to the period we're in right now, this current period of redemptive history, as the already, not yet. And by that, they just mean that, that God's rest, that is, His salvation, has come to us in Jesus Christ. 
The kingdom has come. Christ fully accomplished all that was set out for him to accomplish. His perfect life, his atoning death and glorious resurrection demonstrate for us that the power of sin and death has been defeated. We don't believe, like for example, the Unification Church who, who says that Jesus' work is not complete, that there needs to come someone on later, now even, to, to try to finish what He didn't accomplish. Jesus paid it all. He, he completed the task the Father had set out for Him. And yet, there is a day there's a day that is awaiting the children of God where we will fully enter His rest and experience the fullness of our salvation. Verse 10 there of chapter 4, you get this fairly short, fairly subtle clause at the end of this sentence, verse 10. And yet, there's so much here in this verse for us. There's so much truth. There's so much hope embedded in this verse. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In this verse we find the gospel. In order to receive the gift of salvation we have to stop trying to earn our salvation and instead place our hope and trust in what Christ has done for us. We have to rest in His work and what He's accomplished on our behalf. I like how Dallas Willard put it. He, he, he's known for saying that God is not opposed to effort but to earning. So He's not against our effort. We're to strive. We're to work out our salvation. But we can't earn it. You know, part of my testimony has to do a lot with this. It's really, uh, it was a lot of struggling to rest in what Jesus had accomplished for me. And it's something I, I still battle from time to time and have to look to Jesus and what He accomplished on my behalf to find my value and my significance and my worth. You know, for whatever reason, as a teenager and as a young adult, I often felt this, this imposed pressure to live up to a certain external standard. Uh, probably got it some, I felt it some from parents, teachers, coaches. There was this standard that Chad needed, he had to live up to. And I couldn't on my own. It, it was very much what everybody else wanted for me but not necessarily what God wanted for me. I was trying to do it in my own power, my own strength, and it was exhausting. And there was such a peace and a freedom that came when God worked in my life to just help me see, Chad, you cannot measure up, but my love for you is not based on your ability to measure up. It's based on what I've done for you in Christ. Jesus has lived the life that you have failed to live and He died the death that you deserve to die. So rest. The pressure is off. You are my son and I am well pleased with you in Christ. 
that may you know resonate with someone here today I hope if it does that it encourages you you know the gospel it's good news for the prodigal and it's good news for the older brother it's good news if you've made a mess of things and if you'll turn back to him he he runs to you and he embraces you and it's good news if at times you struggle with a little bit feeling morally superior or working on your own to measure up to that external standard. What the gospel will show you is that you can't and that your heart is, is sick and wicked and that you need the gospel. Isn't that good news? Amen. As adopted sons and daughters of God, Jesus is our rest. He is our salvation. Jesus is our rest. He's our salvation. We can experience His rest now. And we will experience in all its fullness when He comes again. Today is the day of salvation. The promise of entering His rest still stands. We see that in chapter 4 verse 1. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this is good news. This is very good news for you. But it's also a great warning for you. Because the promise of entering His rest will not always stand. No one knows the exact day or hour. But Jesus promised that He would return. And that when He returned, He would return as judge. And verse 13 clearly indicates that every person is going to give an account to God of his or her life. The question is, will he find you faithful? Will you have entered his rest, trusting in his salvation, what he purchased on your behalf? Or will it be too late? Today is a day that his rest still stands. If you'll turn from your sin, if you'll turn from living for self, and turn to Him by faith. Will you repent and believe? In verse 11, we see we have to continue working at resting. Yeah, that's right. We have to work at resting. It may sound a bit counterintuitive, but again, the author of Hebrews writes there in verse 11, let us strive therefore to enter that rest. We must work to not think too highly or too lowly of ourselves, but instead to think of ourselves as those who have received the very righteousness of Christ. It's the living Word, this living book given to us by our living God that will empower us and enable us to enter His rest. This book, as we study it, as we meditate upon it, it reminds us of His good and true promises. And it exposes the false promises of sin. The final two verses we get there, chapter, or excuse me, verse 12 and 13 of chapter 4, are just absolutely amazing to consider. The author of Hebrews is telling us that this book unlike any other book, is a living book. It's written by various authors at various points throughout history, authors from various cultural experiences and backgrounds, 
And yet there is one divine author, one living God who doesn't disregard or, or override human personality as the scriptures are recorded. And yet in this book, all 66 books, we have everything that God intended for us to have. Nothing more and nothing less. In this living book, we see here in these verses, it, it assesses and it diagnoses the condition of the human heart. It exposes who we are better than any counselor or psychologist could ever dream. We know God by knowing His Word. And His Word exposes who we truly are. It shows us our desires and our longings, the things we love, our motivations, our fears, our doubts, where we're placing our trust. It's a book unlike any other because we serve a God unlike any other. There is no God like our God. And as we look to Him, as we trust in Him, as we bank on His promises and expose the false promises of sin, by faith we will endure to the end. Amen. That, that is great hope. If we look to Him, if we trust in Him, if we cling to this book, He's going to get us home. We will endure to the end. Our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ Jesus.